Hey, this is Brandon McManus, Denver Broncos Super Bowl champion, and you listen to The Scoop on OwlScoop.com. Welcome back to The Scoop, HowScoop.com's podcast. This is Season 6, Episode 21. I'm John DiCarlo. Kyle Gauss, Sam Newman, and Sam Cohen are with me again. Um, obviously, all of you know by now that Temple has lost its iconic Hall of Fame basketball coach, John Chaney, passed away last Friday at the age of 89. Uh, we've, in the meantime, just been just trying to reach out to as many people as possible for stories, just... Um, reaching out to his former, some of his former players, some of his former assistants like Nate Blackwell, and um, just trying to ask questions and, and get out of the way and, and let people tell these stories. And um, obviously all of you know, there's just, there's just so much out there and uh, just the, the, the stories that keep pouring in about his impact on the court, off the court. We're going to try to do a lot of that today. We have a, an interview that we'll play for you in a little bit from Marty Collins, the last Temple player to be drafted in the first round of the NBA draft. Um, on one flip side of things, Marty never got to an NCAA tournament with John Chaney, but again, goes down as uh, one of the best all-time players. And he has a remarkable story of uh, getting recruited at the last minute and was prepared to come to Temple as a walk-on. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more in my conversation with him. Um, Kyle, Sam, and Sam, uh, I know you guys didn't get the the chance to cover Chaney, but you're, you're well-versed in the history of the program. Um, Kyle is, there's no better statistician out there than Kyle when it comes to football and basketball. Um, what went through your mind when you guys heard the news? Um, to be honest, it's, it's kind of the, the cliche of like, oh, well, this has to be wrong. Like I, you started hearing that, but it was coming out a little bit on Twitter on Friday. I had people reach out to me about it and you hadn't seen anything super uh, substantial yet or super legitimate yet that you so you kind of assume maybe this is just idiots on, on twitter running with something tweeting at wip um and then unfortunately it starts to come out that's true i mean i think it's just a situation where when i was describing it to non-temple people to non-temple fans i guess is i mean he was temple's paterno he was temple's bear bryant he was temple to a lot of people for 25 30 40 years at this point. I mean, I think a lot of people, when they still think of Temple in 2021, imagine John Chaney in 1988. So um, the more it came out, the more the stories that, I mean, I think if John Chaney was here, he, the first thing he'd tell you is that he, he always uses the word lengthy. He gets lengthy. Uh, he retells a lot of this. He retold a lot of the same stories. And so a lot of the stories that you hear over that you've heard over the last four or five, six days are stories that you've heard 15, 20 times. And they're still, just as impactful they're still just as significant and just as um as noteworthy so i mean i think it's a it's been a sad week if you're in temple nation but uh uh, yeah i mean it's it's just a situation where i I wish i had the opportunity to cover him i didn't my first my years covering temple started during dumpy my years as a temple student started under dumpy i believe my freshman year was dumpy dumpy second year so I, i missed out on that but yeah it's uh it's sad it's unfortunately lived a hell of a life and it's been it's been pretty cool to see how much of an impact he had on so many people from all areas of life. I mean, Bill Clinton tweeted about him. Like you see Magic Johnson tweeting about him. You see Bill Clinton tweeting about him. You see pretty much everybody of note during the nineties had a John story, a John Cheney story, it seems. So uh, it's bittersweet might be the right, bittersweet's not the right word, but like it's sad, but it's also kind of like, 
uplifting to see how much of an impact he had in, in, in his time on earth. Now, Sam, you've been working on a, on a project about Temple basketball history. You, you talked to, to John Chaney not too long ago. What, what can you tell us about that conversation? Um, well, I don't want to get too into it, but I was actually one of the things. So friend of the pod, Ray Dunn, and I, I'm sure if anybody's been listening to this podcast for a while, we've mentioned it once or twice that we're working on this, this lengthy project. But I don't want to get too into the details of the actual conversation, but I, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was the first thing that I said, but later in the day, I kind of been thinking about uh, or reading all these stories that were coming out, obituaries or people bringing up, as Kyle mentioned, just the outpour of you know, love and support for, for who John Cheney was and hearing all these stories. I had texted Ray and I said, like, obviously we were not around the program when John Cheney coached for almost his entire coaching career. We weren't even alive. Um, I not being from not Philadelphia, not being around Philadelphia basketball growing up, I didn't really know who John Cheney was until I came here until I started covering the program. But like having that, like, I, I think John, to answer your question before about um, kind of like what that feeling was. I felt a lot more shock, like a mixture of shock and sadness than I, I think I would have anticipated myself feeling just because, and I think that speaks to what he was for Temple, for the basketball program, just having covered the program, like seeing the, seeing the, the outpour of, uh, of emotions and people really coming to um, speaking to who he was as a person, I think was fascinating. So I had said to Ray, I feel really fortunate that although we never covered him, we never had the chance to really be with him in person. The only time I ever saw him in person was at Aaron McKee's introductory press conference. Um, and I didn't even get a chance to really talk to him. I was kind of just close to him uh, and being, I was in his presence. But the only time I ever really talked to him was this phone call that then Ray and I had. It was probably an hour and a half phone call. I, we We were promised like half an hour, 45 minutes, whatever. And we ended up talking for an hour and a half. Yeah. And, and he was incredible. It was, it was the kind of thing where we got on the phone. He was like, what, who is this? Who is this? Who are you? Who, what? <laughs> um, and once we had told him who we were, he was like, all right, all right. And then he opened up to us and he was exactly as everybody describes him. He, he is an incredible storyteller. He can talk about literally anything and he loves to like just make jokes and have fun. He just, just such an up, um, just such a great personality, such a great human being to talk to for, I, I, I think the biggest thing that I, um, that I keep reading is hearing people's stories. My favorite thing is hearing people say, oh, when I was covering Coach Cheney back in the day, you know, I would, I would ask him a question. He would invite me to his office for hours. I know, John, you have the story yourself, mm -hmm. like in getting invited to Coach John Cheney's office for a couple of questions and staying there for two hours and talking about everything other than basketball. Um, I think that's been the most interesting thing. And like, I've never had that experience. I've never talked to him more than well, I guess that was over the phone was the only time I've really talked to him, but um, I've never had that experience with a coach or anything like that. But having just having that experience, I think meant a lot to me and something I'll cherish, even though I never really got the chance to meet him in person. It was uh, it was definitely a conversation I'll never forget. Yeah, just to add on to what Sam was saying, I mean, obviously, we didn't get a chance to cover that just echo, echo, um, covering John Cheney, just echoing that. Um, but, you know, with somebody who's always followed sports all my life, I mean, my father wasn't a big college basketball fan, but I always have been um, just understanding the history of the game. John Cheney is a name that, you know, you can't tell the story of college basketball or basketball in general without. I think, you know, when I heard the news um I was sitting in Barber's chair and just kind of like, you're shocked. You just don't really know how to feel. It's just one of those things like, no, he can't like, you know, he, he can't be dying. Like he's can't, he can't be gone, but it's like, I don't know. Like I, I never met the guy. I never knew him, but you, you hear all the stories and it feels like you, all these stories being told about how great of a person, how great of an impact he has. And it's like, you lose like a great uncle just, you know, from the storytelling 
perspective of things and um, just being here and, and being on Temple for the past four years on campus. I mean, John Cheney was Temple. He was Mr. Owl. Like he, he just every, embodies everything about the university, the basketball program, um, top to bottom. Um, it's excruciating loss for just, you know, not even the basketball community, but, you know, the world. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people saw a hard-shelled person curse a lot do all the antics on TV, but from talking to people like I have, it's like he was a pretty warm heart uh, talking to like Nate Blackwell and, um, and Jason Ivey. He was a pretty warm hearted individual who, who really wanted to make a world a better place for not only, you know, his student athletes, but, but anyone if really in general. So um, it, definitely a tough loss, uh, hard pill to swallow, but um, you know, I, I, I kind of kicked myself a little bit because when I was the co-sports editor of the Temple News, I had a chance uh, to cover, you know, or I would have had a chance to go to Aaron McKee's introductory press conference and I knew he was going to be there. So I wanted to ask him questions, but I, ha- I had a test I couldn't miss that day. So um, that, that's something that I'll always be like, damn, you know, I wish I could have gotten that opportunity. But now you kind of live vicariously through other people's experiences and, and through this, I mean, you know, the series that we've done through Owl Scoop, it, it's been nice to let other people tell the stories of, of coach Cheney for sure. Sam, you have that, uh, Jason Ivey's told that story before. I think he told it on, on our podcast. Uh, when we talked to him, when he first joined Aaron's staff, that, that great story he has where he said, I'd never heard of the guy. And I was watching a, a blooper tape on VHS and it was a lot of big five stuff. And it was bloopers of John Cheney. And he said, I'll never play for that guy. And then lo and behold, he ends up playing for him. And the guy, and the guy changed his life. Again, um, we got a lot of stuff up on the site right now. And we're going to just continue to, like I said, do our best to to reach out to as many people as we can. Again, because there are there, there's so many great storytellers here. Um, you know, Sam talked to Nate Blackwell, um, talked to Jason Ivey, Tom McNudo, getting back in the fold, talked to Mark Macon, Haroon Kumar, uh, talked to Mark Tyndale, Sam Kong. You talked to, to Chris Clark, and uh, Chris was kind enough to – chat with me a little bit uh, last Friday, the day that the coach Cheney passed away. Um, again, you guys didn't get a chance to cover them, but cover John Cheney, but you know, what, what stands out, Sam Cohn, you know, from, you know, talking to, you know, talking to Chris, I mean, you got some good stuff from him again, you guys never got to really, well, you talked to him over the phone, but when you talk to these guys through their stories, what, what stands out to you? Some of the stuff that they, they passed on to you. There's one thing that um, that really stood out to me between. So I talked to Quincy Wadley, Shiz Alston, yeah. and Chris Clark, and uh, there was something that Quincy had mentioned to me that like really stood out to me. And then I, uh, when I talked, that I asked Shiz Alston about too, and he was he was kind of happy to hear it. Um, so when I had talked to Quincy Wadley for this project back over the summer, he had mentioned kind of like he didn't want to get into a lot of details about it, but he had mentioned that when he so Quincy Wadley was a Prop 48 kid in his freshman year, he had spent on the sidelines for, for that, for the entirety of that season next to Dan Leibovitz, who was the grad assistant at that time. And he said he spent so much time writing down Cheney lessons and everything coach Cheney did and everything the team did in this notebook. And he said, I'm not sharing this notebook with you in the slightest, but he had told me a little bit about it, that it was a lot of like these Cheney lessons and a lot of things that he passed down. Um, so I asked him like, when you think about that notebook or when you think about those lessons and, you know, you think about, uh, you teaching your kids those lessons, like what, what is the impact that coach Shaney's legacy has through those lessons? And he had a really poignant answer about um, seeing guys like Shiz Alston, guys like Jalen Brunson, even guys like Jake Forrester 
and he none of them played under Coach Cheney. He hasn't even met all of them, but he, he when he sees them play, when he sees their mannerisms, he sees Coach Cheney in them because Coach Cheney coached all of their dads, and it's the kind of thing that Coach Cheney teaches this, the Temple basketball community, teaches his players, and those are the kinds of things they get passed down. He said he wants, he hopes, you know, he's passing on those lessons to his kids. He knows all of those other dads. Um, uh, Rick Brunson and, and LeVan Alston Sr. And, and Dwight Forrester are all taking those lessons from, from Coach Cheney and passing them on to his kids. So I had said to, to Shiz Alston, I said that, you know, Quincy Wadley was telling me that he, you know, he, when he sees you play or when he talks to you, like he sees those lessons in you. He knows that your dad played for Coach Cheney without even really knowing, um, which I thought was a really, was a really funny story. And Shiz was, then Shiz told me a story that's in, that's in the story I'd written um about he had seven turnovers he really didn't have a great game one day and then uh his dad is in the car leaving the game and coach Shaney calls LeVan Alston senior and says and he's like yelling at him he's like what why did you have seven turnovers tonight and he's like I didn't have seven turnovers she's had seven turnovers I told you when you played for me that you couldn't turn the ball over now your son's doing it and he's like coach it wasn't me that was shiz and it's that funny back and forth and shiz was cracking up that Coach Shaney was yelling at his dad for something he did. And just like the passing on of those lessons and the widespread knowledge that Coach Shaney had and that legacy and that impact stretches so far, even beyond his players. And I think that was a really, uh, a really cool thing to hear. Yeah. I think there's, there's so much great coverage that's out there, whether it's from Mike Kern, uh, Dave Jones, Dana O'Neill, Tyler Tynes. Like there's just, I think a lot of us have just been sifting through story after story. And again, I, I think, one of the things that you see is that he had a, he had a profound effect on the people who covered him and not just his players. Cause he was just, he was just great in that way. He didn't, uh, he didn't take things out on a student reporter. He when you were covering him for the temple news, he made you feel like the most important person in the room. And, you know, again, he would invite you back to his office. Sometimes he did that every once in a while for me. Um, you know, when I was covering from covering him for Al Scoop, like if, you know, if you had a question for a feature, I think I was saying this to you, Sam, that, that wasn't within the context of what was going on in the, the general Q&A post game, and, and it would have thrown things off. You'd say to whoever the, the SID was at the time, hey, can I ask coach, just can I just grab him in the hallway, ask him a quick question? Yeah, hold on a second. And sometimes you'd think you were going to be told no. And they'd be like, yeah, go back. He's waiting for you. And he was just, he was always down to talk. And sometimes he would start off on a story and he was really engaging. And then you'd think, how the hell does this have anything to do with, with what I asked him? And then he winds it back around. You're like, okay, this makes sense. I mean, he had so many great quotes about any player that he wasn't happy about. He would, he would use the old analogy. Like he could, you could sit his ass on top of the rim, drop, flip a switch and he would drop through the basket and he still wouldn't be able to score. And, and he would say like, put print that. That's, that's on the record. And I would say, I'm not even asking about this one guy and he would just go off. But I mean, he was just, he was just one of a kind. Uh, and again, like you felt fortunate to just spend a little bit of time around him and, and growing up in this area, you know, before I went to temple, you know, Villanova was great. Temple was great. And it was cool to just watch these schools go back and forth. And yeah, if you don't know any better, you look at him like, Oh, that's this, that's the scary guy on the sideline. It's always yelling. And then when you get the chance to cover him you have that general fear of like, I better get this question right or else he's going to rip my head off. And, you know, never really, never really did that. You know, Kevin Nagandi shared the the great story on sports center that, you know, he's told before he called me when he was on his way into the office and said, I'm just trying to think of the right way to just memorialize him tonight. And, you know, Kevin told that great story about, you know, John Cheney looking at him and saying, where are you from? 
And he's like, oh, I'm from Phoenixville. He's like, no, where are you from? Where is your family from? And he's like, oh, they're, well, they're from India. And, and he uh, had the next day, he said, I want somebody like in that conversation, he said, I would like to eat some of your mom's Indian food. And then, so Kevin's mom, who's this incredible person, made him all this stuff. And Kevin brought it over and dropped it off. And then Chris Squeary, a friend of ours, um, was trying to track down Kevin the next day, nonstop. And this is before cell phones. He was saying, my one mission was to try to track you down today because Coach Cheney has this, this letter, I think, that he, that he wants to uh, thank you, know, that he wants to give your mom. Like he was just, he was just great in that way. And uh, again, we'll, we'll, we'll do our best in the coming days to just, like I said, just there, there's so many stories to, to be told by all sorts of different generations, whether it's, you know, some of the earlier players that he coached, like Mark Macon, uh, you know, all these players from the 80s, the 90s, Marty Collins, who you'll hear from in a second, uh, played for him up until 2006. Again, um, was that the last Temple player to be drafted uh, in the first round, went to the Knicks, played in the NBA for a few seasons and played overseas. Um, again, we'll, we'll just try to bring you as much as we can to do our best to memorialize him. And um, this interview that I'm going to play in a second of Marty Collins, again, he shares some great stories here, uh, you know, ranging from, you know, the, you know, just some of the early practices. And uh, those of you who watch Marty Collins might remember he was not a point guard at Simon Gratz. He was playing more in the post and uh, you know, he'll, he'll tell the story here about, John Cheney going to recruit him and then telling Bill Eller be like, Hey, I like Marty Collins too. And Marty's real only other option at the point was to go to Coppin state. And he was prepared to come to temple as a preferred walk on because Michael Blackshear, who unfortunately uh, passed away uh, was coming in on scholarship, but Michael Blackshear ended up being an academic non-qualifier and Marty was able to take his scholarship while he sat out his freshman year and became the, the, the greatest almost walk-on in, in Temple history, scored you know, just shy of 2,000 points and, uh, and turned into a heck of a point guard, was really smooth, a great shooter, was able to create space. And so you'll hear, some, hear him share some, uh, some stories here about what John Chaney meant to him. Well, obviously with the passing of John Chaney, we have been trying to talk to as many of his former players and coaches as possible and kind enough to join us on the scoop this week is former Temple guard Marty Collins. Marty, the last Temple player to be drafted into the first round of the NBA, had an NBA career, a uh, career overseas. Marty, thanks so much for, for joining us. I'm sorry we're talking under these these circumstances. How you doing otherwise? Doing good, man. Just um trying to get through this little tough week. And um other than that, you know, doing well. Marty, when you got um when you got the news. I mean, obviously it's not good. We've all, I mean, as a reporter, I've been dreading this day and I didn't even play for the guy. So I can't, can't even imagine how you must feel when you got the news. I mean, uh, like beyond the sadness, like what, what went through your mind? Um, it was tough. I mean, I think initially it didn't hit me at first. And initially I just wanted to let it kind of let everyone know that didn't, that probably didn't know yet. Um, so I, I, I immediately, I called Mark Tindell. Since we were so close, I called Dustin Salisbury and I called David Hawkins. So I, I tried to talk to them. Mark knew. Dustin and Dave didn't know yet. Um, so it, it didn't hit me at first. It just was just trying to let let people know. And then I think like later on in a, a few hours later, it started hitting me because it's like all the old memories and all the things, you know, that he that he taught me. I just started to think about all the old memories. So it was it was rough for, for about a couple of days. It was kind of rough just to hear it. And, and, and you kind of know. And expected because, like, we, me and me actually got a text from Lynn Griffin 
um, a few weeks ago and Lynn said check on him because he wasn't doing too well. Mm-hmm. And me and Mark tried to call him, um, but his daughter answered the phone and he said because he was sleeping and said he would get back to us. But, you know, we nobody ever got back to, to me, or, me or Mark. So we just figured, you know, he wasn't able to make any calls. Um, but it, it, it was tough. Um, but the last few days, me and my teammates, we just been kind of reminiscing on a lot of things. And that's, that's kind of helped with it. Well, for, for our listeners here on the podcast, take us back to the beginning, because again, I just want to remember, make sure I remember this correctly. You were going to come in as a walk-on, right? Because they, they had recruited your, your teammate, the late Michael Blackshear. And was it, was it Bill Ellerby who recommended you to coach Cheney or was it, was it coach Cheney? You know, I, I should, should know this off the top of my head. Cause I remember covering your recruitment. Was it, was it, was it coach Ellerby who made the recommendation to coach Cheney and then he came to see you? Well, it, it just, I don't even think it just happened. It just coincidence. It was a coincidence. Like it happened. I think Temple just finished playing uh, North Carolina State at North Carolina State. They got in. We just happened to be having a um, a game at a uh, McGonagall Hall. We was playing uh, Germantown Academy, uh, one of the yeah. top team, top teams. So he was coming in. I think just to watch, you know, um, uh, Blackshear, Michael Blackshear, mm-hmm. and I just happened to have a great game, and I had a great game, and. Um, he, he really liked me. I heard that he liked me. And then he came to another game when we played Martin Luther King High School. And, um, you know, and from there, he just said he wanted me to come. He said he didn't have any scholarships available. But um, if one happened to um, come up, that I was more likely, you know, I could come as a walk-on or if a scholarship opened up, I can get the scholarship. So um, he had a great relationship with my um, my mentor, my like my father figure, John Arnett. Yeah. So they also talked about it too. So um, um, it was like a no-brainer for me. Once he had some interest, and he said I could come as a walk-on. I, I, it really mat- It didn't really matter as a walk-on or a player because I came to so many Temple games the year before that I just was excited, you know, just to play for the Cherry and White. And refresh us too on this. Like if it wasn't – if the Temple thing didn't come through because it's your story is crazy because you were good at Gratz, but you weren't super highly recruited for whatever reason. If, if Temple hadn't come around, where, where were you going to play? I more than likely was going to Coppin State. That's right. Yeah. It's like uh it, I reason why I was wasn't so recruited so because I really only technically really kind of played one full year where I played. Yeah. I played I, w- I was on the team at Simon Gratz for two years. Mm-hmm. But my junior year, I, I really didn't play at all. I didn't get in. Um mm-hmm. so like I kind of took off my senior year and I had a great year. Um played really well, but I was also playing the four. I was playing, you know, the four man. So I didn't get a chance to like really kind of play my game and set for those, actually those two games coach Shaney came to, Yeah, I got to play, bring the ball to the floor and play kind of the wing. Um, but other than that, it was Coppin state. I had, I went on a visit and a lot, we had a lot of guys from my AU team with John Arnett mm-hmm. that went to Coppin state. So I went on a visit and it would look like I wasn't getting any, any other look. So I was more than likely going to Coppin state. Now coach Ellerby, if he knew, um, was there was there any thought at the time, like if he knew that that you know that John Cheney's coming to your games, was there any conversation like, hey, maybe you know, talking to the staff and saying maybe we should showcase Marty a little bit here, or was that just purely coincidental? It was purely coincidental. I think he was he was just coming to watch Michael Blackshear, mm-hmm. and um, I just happened to have a couple good games, and I think Coach Elby was the first one to tell me. He said, "Coach, coming to the game, and he actually he, he likes you." Mm-hmm. So when I heard that he likes me, it, it was kind of like, okay, uh, he's coming to the game. Let me let me try to play well and. I had a really good game playing against Martin Luther King High School, the game he came to watch. And so uh, Coach L let me know that he, he kind of did. And um, once he did that, I was like, I'm on board. Like whether mm-hmm. it was a walk-on or whatever, I'm, I'm on board. 
you went on to become the 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 greatest almost walk on in, in in Temple history. Oh, do you remember Marty your first conversation with Coach with Coach Cheney? Um, I don't remember the first conversation verbatim, but I just remember um he was excited about me coming in, and I remember we had talks about playing point guard, and mm -hmm. that kind of like threw me off because. And I actually posted this on Instagram the other day. It's like I'm gonna ask you about that. Yeah, his yeah, like he 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 he's seen things that I I didn't see. Like I didn't even never envision a point guard myself. I always played the wing, more more of a scorer, trying to score. Um, and so when he initially said that to me, that kind of was like point guard. It, it was that's the only thing I kind of remember from our first our first conversation. I didn't talk to him a lot when I first got there. I was I, I talked to uh, Nate Blackwell a lot. Yeah. And Nate and Nate was like, "Yo, he love you, Coach. Love you. He just hates your spin move. He hates you spinning." <laughs> and but 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 Nate was always telling me, "Keep doing what you're doing. You play. You might have a chance to start if you keep playing well." And I I always remember those conversations with Nate. You had that. You had that on Instagram. It was that I, I expletive deleted made you, and you said that was that that was the reference to him. <laughs> like you just said, seeing something in you. As a as a point guard, you you know you can talk to a long, including Nate, Howie Evans, Linger, all these these people who played. Anybody who had the ball in their hands, um, you know how challenging he was. It's it sounds like cliche at this point, but it's true. He hated turnovers. It was just great responsibility with the ball. What was it like to play to for a guy who didn't play the point in high school? And now you're a point guard and you average double figures all four years. What was it like to have that responsibility? to have him on you because you know how much he gets on a point guard. What was it like to kind of get thrown in the fire right away like that? <laughs> it, it was tough. I, I, I just, that's, that's another thing I said. I said playing point guard for John Cheney might be the toughest job in sports history. Mm -hmm. Like that's how tough it was because it, it was these, like you had so much, such a responsibility, to, you know, to, to do so much for the team. It wasn't just about, you know, getting guys involved. It was about, he wanted you to think the game like him. So he was trying to, every day he was putting me through, through so many little, little lessons and, and, and things that was confusing me and was frustrating, but it was all just to, to get me to think like how he would want me to like as a point guard. And that's like not getting the ball to guys in position where they can, where they can be successful and not putting them in positions for them to make mistakes. That was the key. That was a key thing, putting the ball in guys and putting them in a position for them not to make mistakes. Um, and then with me, like I said, never playing point guard, I was trying to adapt of when to get guys involved and when to attack. So that was always a thing that that for my first couple of years, it really was tough. I think it did start to click a little bit to maybe the second half of my sophomore year. It started to click a little bit, like a little more. Um, but about my junior year, I was really, really comfortable. But by still then, it was still. He still had so many, you know, lessons and things he was trying to teach you. So that whole I made you thing came my senior year. You know, mm -hmm. I I was feeling myself a little one day at practice and I just wasn't like trying to hear what he was saying because I was frustrated. And I kind of like flagged him like, uh, and he just went off. He made in it. And it was, it, I needed it because I was, you know, I was being, you know, recruited to be drafted and, and my name on a on a on a draft mock drafts and reading my newspaper clippers, all American, honorable mention, all these things. And he kind of brought me back down to earth, like, yo, like this the guy that 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 brought me here and taught me everything. You can't can't ever disrespect him because he taught you everything. He literally did make you.
So you gave him the hand, you gave him the brush off. I kind of like gave him like, ah, oh, I don't feel like hearing this. And I didn't <laughs> think he saw it. I kind of like, ah, oh. I didn't think he saw it. He saw it. And he, I mean, it was, it was 10 minutes of, I made you, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be shit without me. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he made me feel this big. And everybody's like, I was talking to Chris Clark the other day. Chris Clark is laughing. He, he's like, I remember laughing because it's always funny when he's cussing somebody else out. Yeah. But when it's on you, mm-hmm. uh, everybody's, you almost in tears when it's on you because it's, you can't take it. He's just on you for 10. He might be on you for a whole practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he didn't care. I remember talking to Dustin about this. I remember this distinctly. Dustin was going to get like a breakfast sandwich somewhere on campus and he was eating it before practice. I was like, you're going to eat a bacon, egg and cheese before practice. Aren't you going to cramp up? He was like, you're of the impression that we actually run a lot. He's like, it depends on the day. It depends on the day. If he's going to talk to us for an hour, it depends on who's going to, who's yeah. going to yell at. He's like, yeah, so I might cramp up. But if it's one of those days where he talks to us for an hour and then we go at it, like I'll, I'll be able to like digest by that point. We, every once in a while, when we were fortunate enough to see practice, yeah, like he would say something so funny and we'd have to turn our heads and laugh. But then I would look out, like you said, if he wasn't yelling at you, you, you couldn't help, but you couldn't help. Yeah. You couldn't help but laugh. Did he ever catch somebody else and say, what are you laughing at? And would he just kind of just go around or was it solely focused on the guy that he was just laying into? It was solely focused on him. Like and other guys would laugh. We would, sometimes we would high laugh. But sometimes he would say something so funny that he was looking to make everybody laugh. So yeah, we would bust out laughing in front of him. But some most of the times, I say majority of the time, we would try to hide our laugh because he was serious. And mm-hmm. if he was cussing you out, it was for a reason, trying to teach you something. So we would kind of like have, have to laugh and turn our heads. Like and and I, I think for any type of player, like they learning how to to play for him, it's really tough because like off the court, like he's you can go in there and talk to him about basketball, about anything. He has food for you. And you can just talk. And he's like the coolest mm-hmm. uh, mentor, father figure, grandfather in the world. You can just talk about everything, laugh. But on the court, he was always trying to teach lessons. And sometimes you, when you're 19 years old, 20 years old, you don't understand it at first. Yeah. And you just think he's just on you. But you later realize later down the line, like, oh, that's why he was trying to teach me that. That's why he didn't want me to do that. And you would get it later, it would click later. But in that moment, like you said, it was when it wasn't on you, it was funny. But when it was on you, you wanted to cry. Like I've seen him make guys almost cry. Mm-hmm. I've seen him make guys want to hit them. Like, <laughs> and, it, and it just was, it was funny. It was hilarious. What's the craziest thing he ever said to you? Is there any, I mean, everybody has like their stories. And I, again, I, I remember hearing him say anybody who like, had had a close cut. He'd say, if you had hair, it would look stupid. He would just say all these things. Do you remember the craziest thing he ever said to you where you just couldn't help but laugh? He, he didn't say anything great. Like, like other than that incident, I just told you, he didn't say anything crazy to me. We actually, he would play mind games with me, but he wouldn't say anything crazy to me and everybody be like, Oh, you get special treatment, uh, whatever. But so he didn't really say anything to me. Um, I think the funniest thing he did to me <laughs> was uh, I happened to get hit below the waist at practice one day. So, you know, I'm on the ground, like I'm, it's, it, my stomach is hurting. Like, and he's like, come here, let me do something real fast. So he like, sit up. So I'm sitting on the ground and he lifts me up and just drops me on my ass. So <laughs> drops me on my ass. I immediately, ah, and I'm, I'm holding my ass. So it took the pain away from me getting hit in the midsection. <laughs> but I, I, he's like, see, you forgot about the pain there. <laughs> Everybody was laughing. I couldn't, I was like, it worked though. Like I literally forgot about the pain of getting hit in my midsection <laughs> because he did that. And that was, that was hilarious. Like it was hilarious. 
Didn't he also, was it, I, correct me if I'm wrong on this, was it a game at South Carolina? Didn't he hold you out of the starting lineup because you weren't wearing a hat on the bus? Only game of my career I didn't start. And it was, and I'm going to tell you the whole, this the whole story. We, we played at Georgetown and we had a, and we had a great game at Georgetown, played Georgetown well, beat them. Antoine Robinson and Wayne Marshall were late to the bus because his rule was you had to wear your hat, wear your hat because mm -hmm. it's cool and once you get sick. Wayne Marshall and Antoine Robinson was just late to the bus. They were late to the bus at Georgetown. So, you know, they, they get fussed out for being late to the bus. So we beat Georgetown. We go to Fly Street, South Carolina. And now, mind you, it's not even cold in South Carolina. It's not even cold. Yeah. But that's his rule. Now, I couldn't find my hat. I'm in a hotel where I can't find I couldn't find it. couldn't find it. I'm like, but I'm thinking Antoine and Wayne were just late to the bus. I can't be late to the bus. So I'll rather lose the hat and not mm -hmm. be late because I'm not I don't want to get cut off of being late. Yeah. And I'm thinking this is South Carolina is not that cool. He's probably won't be that mad. So I get on the bus. He didn't see it. So I'll, I'm trying to wait till everybody get off the bus so he won't see the hat. He won't get off the bus for some reason. He's <laughs> waiting for everybody. I don't know. Like maybe he saw it and didn't want to say something, but I'm waiting for everybody off the bus. I'm trying to be be slow. I finally get off because he wasn't getting off, he wasn't getting off the bus. I get off. I see him look and I'm like oh, I know he saw it. But this is another crazy part of the story. They pull the bus right up to the arena door. So mm -hmm. I literally take two steps to get off the, the bus and walk right into the door. I wasn't even outside for more than five seconds. Mm -hmm. He saw the hat wasn't on. Soon as we start getting in the locker, walking to the locker room, say, hey, man, where's your hat? <laughs> I'm like, I couldn't, I couldn't find it, coach. What you mean you couldn't find it? And he just goes crazy. <laughs> Wilbur tries to hand me his hat. <laughs> like no, I his hat. He, he gave it to me because he was trying to be a good leader. Let me give his hat. Yeah, no, fuck that, son. No, he didn't. Like he crazy. <laughs> not starting. I'm like not starting. Like over a hat. Like I'm so pissed. And seeing it now, I wish I would have handled it better. But me being a pouty, twenty year old kid, nineteen year old kid, I was so mad I wasn't starting that. I think that caused us to lose the game because once I got in. My mind wasn't there. All I was worried about was I didn't start and he's tripping over a hat. And I just, and then uh, a friend of mine called me, an older friend of mine from my neighborhood called me afterwards and like, yo, I don't care if it wasn't cold or not. That's his rules. You got to follow his rules. It's about principle. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I understand. And, and it was just a lesson of, okay, I, I never forgot my hat after that. Well, you, you talked about, I think you said just a few minutes ago that it, it took maybe till like halfway through your sophomore season for things to sink in. I, I hear a lot of guys say, when he's yelling at you, you can't, you can't listen to the tone. You have to listen to the message. And I think a lot of guys have also said, if he stops yelling at you, you that's yes. dangerous because it means yes. he's not on you as much. How long did it take you to get that same amount of time? Or was that something that the guys tried to like train you on when you got to temple? Train me on. I think David, David Hawkins and Alex Wesby did a good job of just like training us on like, yo, he's on you. That means he, he cares. So, um, but honestly, I feel like he was on everybody. Like, he was on everyone. Like, I, I can't really picture, like, because you say, the saying is said all the time, if he's not on you, then that means he doesn't care. But that shows you John Chaney. I don't care. I remember him cussing Wilbur out, walk-ons out, like mm -hmm. fussing at walk-ons. So, yeah, he was on a lot of us. Maybe, I think the hardest in my four years, Antoine Robinson was on him the most. And I think because he's seen the most potential in him. So mm -hmm. that, that saying still could be true because he was on Antoine tough. Mm -hmm. Um, but 
honestly, he was on everybody. And, and I can't really I can't really say he wasn't on everybody. But, yeah, it was the same thing. Like, David Hawkins and Alex, they kind of just told me, oh, if he's on you, that means he really likes you. So, but for me, I had John Arnett. That was kind of the yeah. – he cussed me out just as much, mm-hmm. you know. And so having him prepare me for that kind of really helped. So I actually really wasn't frustrated. My I didn't – he didn't start frustrating and getting – and me confusing me until I was an upperclassman. Mm-hmm. When I was a junior and senior, that's when he started to confuse me. As a freshman and sophomore, he kind of he kind of just let me play. Mm-hmm. He kind of just let me play, um, and wasn't yelling at me so much my first my first year and a half. I'm just far I, when I say my second half of my sophomore year, I'm just saying far as far as starting to click, far as learning how to play the point guard role for what he wanted. Mm-hmm. What was it like? Did you ever have like a realization as a player, and I, maybe it was sooner rather than later, where you're bringing the ball up the floor and you're playing point guard for him early on when you weren't doing that in high school. Did you ever kind of just pinch yourself and say, this point last year, I wasn't being recruited. Now I'm playing for one of the greatest coaches of all time. And I'm, and I'm starting, I've got the ball in my hands. Did you ever have those moments where I know he, he didn't allow you, like you said, yeah. to kind of feel yourself, but just even just in your head, did you ever kind of look around and be like, holy crap, how did this happen? Is this really came together for me? I, I didn't have those moments right away at all. I was just so happy to be out there. And I was so nervous. Like, like, like I said, being coming to Temple and playing for Temple, you know, and I was just coming to every game the year before watching Lynn. Um, so getting there, I didn't have the, I didn't have that. I didn't, I wasn't thinking about that. I was just trying to think about, you know, bringing the ball up, not turning it over and trying to play well. I think later down the line, I started to, 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 to think about that, think about those things and um, how much it meant to, to play for it. Like I said the other day in my post, I could like, to be a kid that was a walk-on and for him to put the ball in my hand from day one, mm-hmm. like, and I think I realized that once I start playing, especially my junior year, when I had that great junior year and I'm, I'm playing all these games on ESPN and playing well against Chris Paul and Dukes and all that. That's when it started to be a little surreal for me where I'm like, wow, I'm really, I'm really a kid from, 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 from Philly, like that's on TV playing every day. And, and and playing for a Hall of Fame coach and and playing for Temple where I, I grew up watching the school, mm-hmm. so it didn't hit me kind of like to later on like maybe my say my junior year it started to hit me I started to think about those things. How would he how would he compliment you and tell you you were doing a good job? Because again, like you you told that story about he, Nate saying he doesn't like your spin move, but your spin move was good. Your shot was great. You you know your ability to create space be be crafty you were just really fun to watch and you were a damn good player did he ever pull you aside and just pat you on the back and say you've got a shot like you've got a shot to play in the league no he, he's, he never did that I don't think he ever wanted to do that for me he wanted to always I think just keep me humble and and and, and not have me looking ahead and deal with the task at hand um I remember a couple times like my teammates they may tell you a different story they think he's like days at practice where he was working on a full court press and he knew I knew how to break it. So he would just sit me down the whole practice and let Mark and Dustin have had to break it. And they'll be trying to break the press for, for, for an hour straight. So I feel like those times where he didn't say it, but I knew he like, okay, I know Marty knows what he's doing. So you're going to sit down and you ain't practicing today. You sit down and watch them do it. So it was those little moments. And the one other moment, I remember he did it. We played Rhode Island at home one time. I think it was my, might have been my junior year, and I had a. I started the game off so well the first half. I might have had like 15 points quick, and we were we were we were we were up by a lot of points. And you know, usually I don't I don't really ever come out the game, 
So I'm had like 14, 17 points, something like that first half. And I, and I, and I finally made a turnover towards like maybe like six minutes left in the half. And so I made a turnover and, um, he pulled me out and he pulled me out. I, I look confused. I'm like, I never come out the game. So when I go to the bench, he said, you're going to sit here and watch the game right with me. So you could, so we could coach together. And he kind of was like, he kind of told me like, that was, that was almost a perfect half. You almost had to the turnover. And that was like only the one, the one compliment I remember him giving me actually saying I actually did so. Oh, oh no. One other time in Dayton. When we played mm-hmm. Dayton in the, um, a 10 tournament. No, no, sorry. We played George Washington. Mm. In the tournament, in an Atlantington tournament, we lost to him, but they were trapping me, and I just was trying to find everybody. I, I might have had like six points. I thought I played terrible, but when we got a locker room. He told me I played so well, trying to break the press and get everybody in the positions where they where they need to be. And that that was a one. That was one of the few times he came in the locker room and really, like Marty, you did a great job. I'm so proud of you. And I, I thought I played terrible. You the one of the one of the other things I wanted to ask you about too, and people, bottom, well, you probably don't forget this. You have this great career, and then you had the scary injury against Akron. Yeah. What was going through your mind? You had this great career, this remarkable career, where you come in as a guy that wasn't highly recruited. Were, were you ever sitting there thinking, like, "Oh my God, this could be this could be serious. All this could be down the all, the drain"? Or did you kind of know that it was going to pass and you'd be okay? Uh, um, I I think I I didn't think I was hurt bad. Honestly, when I first fell, I thought it was just you know everybody being a little cautious. Yeah. But, but once I was down there, laying down there, and I and I see they try to put the neck brace and everything on me, and I started to feel it was it was a pain. And that's what hit me was I'm seeing my niece, my family, my niece, my nieces were crying. Um, you know, uh, Ari Ari was pregnant at the time, so mm-hmm. I was thinking I was thinking about that because mm-hmm. I, I could actually see my nieces and my family crying. Um, but I, I thought I would be okay, but seeing them kind of like made me think like oh I hope I am okay but I, I thought mm-hmm. I would be okay because I didn't think he landed on it pretty hard and my neck was pretty stiff for like a week but I, I didn't think it was I, I I didn't think that far ahead far as like I thought I wasn't gonna be okay mm-hmm. on draft night you know obviously the Knicks call you and I think coach Cheney called you that night do you remember what he said to you that night when you got drafted I don't even remember what he said that night I was so I was getting so many calls and I was so excited I don't even remember. I don't even remember. That's crazy. I don't even remember talking. To, I don't even remember talking to anybody but my agent, honestly, because mm-hmm. my whole family, my family came over to uh, apartment and we were uh, watch. We all watched it. I was so nervous because my agent told me I can go from you know anywhere from thirteen to second round. So the range was so ridiculous that I was so nervous. Even they wanted to do have her cameras in the house. I said no. I'll once I get drafted, I'll meet you at the corner of my apartment. Um, and and I'll uh, come to an interview, but I don't even remember. I just remember, I remember uh, my agent calling me saying that they call you from this number. This this, this them drafting you, um, but I don't even remember talking to anybody on the phone. I might have put my phone. I don't remember at all. That's one time of the day I don't remember. I was so excited, I guess, that I don't even remember. How often would he check in on you when you were playing in the NBA? Would he check in a lot and kind of you know pick out a pick out a moment in a game where he'd say you did this well or would he still get on you for stuff? Not really. Not really. I, that, that first year though, that first year, um, I came down to school a lot that year, that first year, but every time I think we had an off day, mm-hmm. I was down there Philly trying to catch a game. And I saw him a couple times in the game. I talked to him a few times, but he kind of just let me, you know, he like, it's like that. It's like the kid when you send your kid off to college 
you know, you raised them as best you could and did everything you could. And once they get out in the real world, it's kind of like you're on your own now. So he didn't he didn't call me too much. And, you know, he probably didn't watch a lot of the Knicks game. We were so terrible. But um, he didn't talk, talk. I called him. I remember talking to him a few times, just talking about the adjustment and everything. And um, and I saw him a few times when I came to a couple of Temple games. But he didn't he didn't call and try to do that that much. And I remember talking to Mark Macon. He said that was the same thing. Um, he didn't kind of like do that. He was like, once he had the four years with you at college, he kind of raised you. And he's like, okay, now you're on your own now. Did he tease you when you got into the brawl? No, no, he never, we, I don't, we never, never even talked about that at, mm-hmm. at all, ever. Like he never, he never talked about that at all. Well, I imagine when you guys are at his service on Monday, I can't imagine how many stories that you, you guys have to share. And that's probably hopefully going to be a comforting thing for you guys. Marty, is there anything, I mean, so many people have so many stories about him, the players, even he impacted us as reporters. And again, we didn't even play for the guy. Is there, is there anything that, about him that you think people wouldn't know about him or would be surprised to know, or maybe something that like a story that never gets told about him or a misconception or anything like that? I think maybe people may confuse him yelling and being tough as just a mean, a mean guy. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's a, if people say that, but I think people may interpret him yelling at us and, 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 um, you know, always yelling and, and fussing and cussing as him being a mean guy, but actually he's like the funniest guy in the world. Like he's so funny and down to earth has a great sense of humor. When you're off the court, like I said, you can go in that office or if you're in the airport walking with him, he has a million stories and he's funny he, and he has no filter. He's going to tell the craziest <laughs> jokes. And that's what the last few days we've been doing. I've been talking with all my teammates and we just been trading stories about all the funny things. And that's what I talked to Dave about. I talked to Dave Hawkins about, I said, you know, cause Dave, Dave said he talked to him a few months ago, but he tried to call him last week and didn't get in touch. So we both were saying, we wish we could talk to him one last time. So he could just say something crazy to us. Like, cause he, he would say something crazy that was just so funny, but it would be so true. And, if we would laugh forever. That's why we remember so many stories because most times they were so funny. And I think that's what I don't, I don't, I think people may misinterpret his, him being a tough coach and being tough on us as him just being a mean grump, a grumpy man when he, which he wasn't. Well, Mario, I think a lot of people say he, he really was one of a kind. I, I, and I don't know if we'll ever see a coach like him who was a great coach, but also taught people about racial and social injustices mm-hmm. was one of the first guys speaking out about why prop 48 was unfair and how it yeah, adversely yeah. affected black athletes. Mm-hmm. And do you think we'll ever see, do you ever, do you just look at coach Chaney and say, we'll never, you know, no disrespect to Aaron, no disrespect to Fran Dunphy, but like, do you ever just look at him and say, we'll never, we'll never see the likes of someone like him again. Uh, not for, not for me. I mean, for what he meant to me, I, 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 I I'm a little biased. So I, for me, I don't see it because, like I said, he he changed my life and he changed so many other lives. And it wasn't just like all the lessons he was teaching. It just wasn't about basketball. Like it was, it had a bigger lesson behind it. And it wasn't just about basketball. So I, I'm not saying it will never be someone like him because I'm pretty sure it will be. But he's one of a kind when it comes to the the total the total package of of him fighting for everything, social justice, um, you know, Prop 48, him as a, a, a legendary coach. And also just being a father figures for, for all of us. Like he had the he had the total package and combination of everything. And a lot of coaches may may not have that. They may have one or two, but he he had it all. Do you ever final question for you, Marty? Do you ever find yourself saying 
to your children or any player that you would mentor? Do you ever find yourself just automatically saying some of the things that he would say to you? All the time. Yes. It's like, it's like embedded in you. Like, um, and like I said, John Arnett, he's from, he's been around coach Chaney, mm-hmm. coach Ellaby. He's been around coach Chaney. So I had three coaches that all been around. So it seemed Imagine. like they all, yeah. they all were preaching the same things to me. Yeah. And a lot of the, a lot of the things are just embedded in me now. As with my kids, I know a lot of them things are old school. So I try to be, I try to like update the things that, you know, I see and say to them because the t- times have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of things he just said to me is, is, is who I am. He is who I am is embedded in me. And I can't change that because them guys, them, them three men, they taught me so much. And, um, and like I said, I was those four years with coach was really just a learning experience to teach me about, about playing a game and just about, about life. And, and them, them, them things won't change with me. Marty Collins. Great catching up with you again. Sorry. It's under these circumstances. Always good to talk and uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you down the line. Uh, thank you, man. Appreciate it. And a, a big thank you to, to Marty Collins for spending some time with us. Again, we're um, grateful for his time. I, I love the story about him saying he got hit in the midsection in practice and he's, he's on the floor and then John Cheney goes up and picks him up and then lets him drop back on the floor and says, now you, you won't feel this pain. You'll feel something else. But now Sam Cohn and talking to Chris Clark, you actually heard his version of you know his point of view of the, the story that you heard Marty say uh, tell just now where it was either his day or, or it was either your day or not your day. And that story about John Cheney laying into him saying, I bleeping made you. Uh, and that was a, a reference to a, a kid who wasn't a point guard and, and John Cheney saw something in him and turned him into an NBA point guard. And uh, it's just funny. You, you After a while, you hear some people recall the same stories and their viewpoint. And, and you got that from Chris, uh, Sam Newman, you've talked to, you've talked to Dustin Salisbury, uh, another guy who crossed over and played for Cheney and Fran Dunphy. And you talked to, to Nate Blackwell, John Cheney's first recruit, a really significant piece of, of temple basketball history. Uh, again, these stories are up on the site now, uh, Sam, what stands out to you about the Nate Blackwell conversation? Um, you know, the, the Nate Blackwell conversation, I mean, he, he pretty much spoke to how John Cheney kind of made him into the person that he is today. But also, you know, the big story that stuck out was just, you know, Cheney's ability to see things before they happened. Um, I mean, I mentioned this at the end of my story and, and you can see it, but it was they had lost to Villanova on a tip in by Dwayne McLean. And, and Blackwell made sure to note that it was the only time in his career he ever lost to Villanova. And I guess later in the in the season, they shared a plane with Villanova. And um, go, I don't know where they were going, but it was like January or something. And he pointed over to the team and he's like, you guys see them right there? They're going to win the national championship. And they went on to win the national championship. So it, it was just – and and funny quote in there, Blackwell was like – and I stopped arguing with him after that. Like from that on, I was like, whatever coach says, I do it. Because he was kind of like one of those guys who would argue back and forth. And, I mean, he could kind of tell what – Cheney knew what he was talking about. So just some of those stories and then – um, from Blackwell was, was good, nice to hear. And then moving on to Dustin Salisbury, um, his story was, you know, his favorite memory from Cheney, which I found to be interesting is he came to Temple on official visit, didn't intend on signing. Cheney asked him how he liked it, said he liked it. And he's like, all right, let's go get the paperwork. And it was kind of like, well, what are you waiting for a moment? And he looked at his parents said he wanted to do, and he ends up signing. So, I mean, up until that point, he only had a r- offer from Ryder and Temple. So he, I mean, he didn't really have a bunch of offers, but it was like, it's still kind of just so real that, that Cheney was just like, all right, like we're going to, we're going to sign you here. This is taken care of. So 
Um, and another thing from, from Dustin that he kind of pointed out is he didn't really realize in the moment, but Cheney would get on him. He would ride him and he would curse him out and he would yell at him. And he said he was probably across his time on the team. Like nobody was yelled at more. And it was a kid. It was kind of frustrating for him because he was like, why is he always yelling at me? But it kind of took him as an adult to, to understand that Cheney was doing that because he saw so much in Salisbury and that Temple was, you know, and Salisbury is one of Temple's best players during his time there. Um, and that when he, you know, he was on his A game, they, they were, winning so when when he wasn't on his end game Cheney got on him and then rode him so um it, it was interesting to kind of hear those different perspectives just about you know um and how how Cheney can be you know so a fortune teller uh with you know potential in other teams and then at the same time just like you know how, how that everything that he did was to kind of shape the futures of these young men whether it's for education and and the constant thing between the three the three stories that I've been able to tell is or through other people is that like Cheney was shaping them into be better people, better husbands, better, whatever for the rest of their life. So, so that was kind of the common theme throughout. Yeah. Again, I, you know, I've talked to some younger people who I've worked with and said, you know, what was he like to cover? And I just tell people like, there's again, there's so much great stuff out there. Read as much as you can. All of it is just, everybody kind of has their slice of it. And Again, the guy was just one of a kind to be around and it was really cool. Again, it sounds trite when you hear like coaches say our, our job is to to turn these guys into better young men, better brothers, husbands, um, any sort of responsibility they have in the future. And, uh, you know, I saw that happen. There were guys again, like so many guys that he took from situations Aaron talked about, you know, you gave me a seat at the table. Because Aaron, a similar situation, Coppin State always recruited heavily in Philly. And Aaron didn't really have many other options. He was a good player at Simon Gratz, um, didn't didn't qualify, you know, uh, didn't meet the NCAA's initial eligibility standards for freshmen, along with Eddie Jones. You look at these guys now, and you're like, wow, that's remarkable. Um, he, he brought in a guy like Rashid Brokenborough, who I covered, was at Temple at the time, a, a fantastic player at University City High School, but grew up in a really, you know, just a really troubled neighborhood in West Philly and Indiana, Kansas, all these other programs were on the perimeter and basically telling him, if you qualify, we'll take you. Uh, but there's this great story out there. And I apologize. I can't remember who wrote it, but uh, they detailed the conversation about how um, John Cheney came in to talk to his grandmother. And she was really the, the first one to connect with him. And, and she basically told him, you're not going anywhere else. When Rashid came in, John Cheney still had the, the Mark Macon rule, which was true freshmen weren't allowed to talk. And I think he applied it, and I could be wrong, to guys who were coming off that, that prop year. And I remember Mike Kern going to, to Cheney and saying, hey, there's only a couple guys that are available to talk here. Uh, I know Rashid's young. Can you let him talk? And Rashid was show, he was just so incredibly shy at the time. He couldn't make eye contact with you. By the time he was um, – you know, in his senior year, he was like the, the elder statesman of the program and like the spokesman for the program. And it's just amazing to hear these guys say the same thing over and over and over again. I might not have understood at the time what he was trying to do, why he yelled at me. You heard Marty tell that story just now. He, you know, Cheney held him out of starting a game down in South Carolina because he didn't wear his hat. He didn't wear his hat on the bus and it was warm down there. And one of his buddies, as you heard him just say, you know, from home, he's like, it's the principle of the thing. It's the principle of the thing. And the, the story was great. But uh, again, I, like I said to Marty, I imagine all these guys are going to be at his memorial service. And, you know, obviously we're more in the passing of a great coach, but I think these guys, you just hear them talk and they're just really comforted by the, the memories and the stories, which is what you, you hear uh, anytime you're at somebody's service and they're, they're, they have to be comforted by these memories. But 
the guy was remarkable and it was a joy to spend some time around him. And again, we wish uh, John Cheney's family our, our best wishes. And again, feel fortunate to be able to relay some of these stories. We'll continue to do that in the coming days. As for the current edition of the Owls, they unfortunately did not come out and play inspired basketball uh, against Tulane. Uh, a bad, you know, bad loss, a, a, a step backwards. Um, weren't great at either end of the floor. Um, we'll talk a little bit about what you guys saw from that game and then, um, you know, what they're going to see uh, against Cincinnati in their, in their next game. Obviously, I, I, I don't think any of us thought that this team with a bunch of new pieces and a bunch of new faces was just going to have this automatically steady ascension. But were you guys surprised by how they played uh, against Tulane in the loss? Yeah, I was, I was there. I mean, you could kind of tell pregame that Tulane had like a bunch of energy going and, and Temple just kind of came out flat. Like JP Mormon said, um, I, I was surprised at the, the way that they played. They couldn't get a shot to fall. I mean, the defense that they played was very uncharacteristic. I think it was, you know, in the, the postgame press conference, they were pretty much honest. I mean, they, they said we played selfish basketball, like blowing up to that. We didn't do this. We didn't do that. And, and, you know, I, I think, I mean, obviously losing to Tulane, a team that you already beat and a team that they're probably supposed to beat on paper is kind of frustrating to a fan base that is looking for this team to to be like, okay, we strung a couple wins together now. What's that next step to get us over the hump, get over 500? But it was just a game where everything that could go wrong went wrong. Um, they, I mean, usually when you get Jake Forster as involved as he is, you would expect um, the team to, to play well, but they didn't. And they got killed on the board, something that, you know, which was funny because against Tulane, they killed them on the board. So Tulane comes back a couple of weeks later and kills them on the boards. And um, yeah, they just couldn't find any rhythm on, on either end of the floor. I mean, they made the, the one run in, in the second half, but that was it. And Tulane kind of ran away with it. Um, foul shooting was, was bad. Turnovers bad. Um, you know, just, just not inability to, to the shot selection too. So um, I, I think, you know, as we head into Cincinnati game, you're going to look for some of those things that probably be cleaned up. But I, I think, like you said, John, they didn't exactly play any inspiring basketball. And I think a lot of people were surprised by that. Yeah, I think a couple of things stuck out to me. One is, I mean, this is a team that Temple played two weeks beforehand. And I remember watching the game two weeks beforehand and thinking, like, I don't necessarily see it with Jalen Forbes, the Alabama transfer for Tulane for being as highly recruited as he was. I saw it last week. I saw I saw why he was a top 120 recruit. recruit who, uh, when, when he actually stayed out of foul trouble, played every second of the game, gets 23 points for Tulane. Um, I thought, John, what you were going to do is segue from Marty to Jeremiah Williams by saying, here's another guy that, that played big in, uh, in high school and then and transitioned. He almost gets a double-double without scoring anything. Yeah. It's two points, nine, nine assists, 11 rebounds. Starting to feel like I don't want to all of a sudden say he's going to become a first-round NBA pick like Marty Collins, but you're starting to you're starting to see some things there that make you think that maybe this is a long-term solution at that position. Um, but on the bad side, I think you see that when Temple's not hitting shots from three, uh, Caleb Ballard was one for eight from deep. That offense can really, really struggle at times. I think they're still looking for identities there. They can say, "Hey, we played selfishly," and that that led to that, and that's true and to an extent. But on the other hand, I mean. There were times when that offense looks terrible, but I mean, you know, they go up against uh, they get, they they have the perfect opportunity to bounce back against Cincinnati team that hasn't played in a decade. So, uh, yeah, I, 
I think Sam Cohen, it was you that said it, that Sunday matinee basketball usually disappoints. Uh, that oh, was yeah. a Every disappointing time. performance on Temple's part on Sunday. Sunday early afternoon basketball is the wor- is objectively the worst time to play basketball. <laughs> yeah, uh, they, they played Cincinnati my freshman year on a Sunday afternoon. Terrible. Like, got out rebounded by like 40 and got destroyed. I forget last year if they played, and then there was this Sunday. I forget what their Sunday afternoon game was last year. Yeah, but kind of oh, Villanova. Villanova yeah. last year. Yeah, that, that, that one didn't go well. Yeah, nah. so early Sunday afternoon basketball game, not good. Uh, problem, the problem, add, problem is they have they have another one of this Sunday. <laughs> yeah. <But>. Woohoo. <laughs> well, Kyle mentioned – Kyle brings up a, a good point. Yes, I should have segued to, uh, to Jeremiah Williams, another um, – kind of under recruited well jeremiah had at least like some uh several mid-major like offers coming State, out of yeah. uh you know coming out of Simeon high school but another guy wearing number 25 who's making a huge impact again I, I would have to think he's maybe your one or one of your lone bright spots from that game kyle you know reggie his stat line again plays 35 minutes and to affect the game the way he did while shooting one of six and and really just just scoring two points 10 boards, 11 assists, uh, sorry, t- uh, 11 boards, nine assists, just one turnover uh, to get nine assists in a game when no one's really putting the ball in the basket at a, at a, at a great clip other than, you know, Don and Foster had 15 points apiece, And after that wasn't really anybody else. I, I continue to be impressed by, by him. I agree with Kyle. I think he's a, he's a long-term solution there. I think it's going to make it even harder for someone like Ty Strickland to get off the bench, create some good competition when you bring in Hasir Miller, but I, continue to be really, really impressed with him. Uh, the Cincinnati- oh, real quick, Jeremiah Williams, last four games, which seems like a small sample size, but it's half the season to this point. Yeah. 27 to five assist to turnover ratio, which is for, some, for a guy that didn't play point guard in high school. Yeah. Very yeah. impressive. Now this Cincinnati- well, St. Lawrence, oh. he played a little more, he played more guard at St. Lawrence. It's okay, So it's once, once he played big boy high school basketball, he didn't play. Yeah. Point guard. <laughs> um, yeah. So he played again, a lot of isolation at St. Lawrence. This is a you know a, a tricky Cincinnati team here in the sense that again like they they haven't played since January 10th. It's been a long time. Uh, they've had their last five games uh, put on the shelf due to, to COVID 19. Uh, Keith Williams, Jeremiah Davenport are uh, their leading scorers. There, kind of hard to know what to expect in this game just because of how inconsistent Temple has been and just the fact that we really haven't seen Cincinnati in four weeks, but what, what are you guys expecting tomorrow night? I mean, I think if you're a Temple fan, you're expecting a win because to be honest, the month layoff is, is huge. Obviously. I mean, you saw what happened with Tulane in their first game back after a COVID break and they got destroyed in the first half and it made it more respectable in the second, but Cincinnati wasn't playing good basketball before COVID. No, like it's not, it's not like all of a sudden they were like nine and two and they had to shut down for a month. They were three and seven, mm-hmm. three and seven with two of those wins coming against Furman and, and Lipscomb. I always forget how to pronounce it. They're, they have one conference win. So, I mean, I would, I would think that if you're Temple and you think there's any chance for them to finish in the middle of the American this year, then they have to, they have to win tomorrow. They have to be a Cincinnati team that usually is one of the better teams in the conference, but this is a down year for John Brandon's, Team program they're rebuilding i mean he's a guy that had a lot of success at what north northern kentucky um and then you kind of just saw like this mass exodus and he's rebuilding the program his way this is cincinnati in a down year you need to win this game i'm not reading into it too much but i think there's something to be said about the the last time they played cincinnati that was the game they played at their place when jp mormon hit that corner three and then 
to take the lead and or it was either tie or take the lead and then Cincinnati gets the tip in at the other end to win the game. I think the returning guys, the older guys, Jay Forrester, JP Mormon, Trey Perry, maybe have a little bit of a little bit of a salty taste in their mouth from that and they give them a little extra motivation. But I think more than anything, what I'm expecting from this game is a bounce back game because Temple had been on a pretty good path with good wins over Tulane, Tulsa, UCF. We had talked about their only losses up to before this past Tulane game came four losses and each were split between the two best teams in the conference, SMU and Houston. Other than that, they had played, excuse me, they had been playing good basketball against middle of the pack teams in the conference. They'd been on a little bit of a high off a two game win streak, whatever you read into that. And then this Sunday afternoon game happens. Obviously there's a lot going on with coach Cheney's passing uh, just two days before I'm sure there are heavy hearts. I'm sure that had something to do with the preparation for that game. But uh, the Sunday afternoon basketball game just did not go the way they wanted. So maybe that was in a sense humbling to the fact that they really understand that they have to play their like best basketball to be one of the better teams in this conference and to really compete with every team in this conference. The way I see it, I think it's going to be a bounce back game. I think they're going to learn from this. I think it was a humbling experience hearing JP Mormon and Aaron McKee both say, as Sam mentioned, coming in the post game and saying, we played selfishly, we played flat. I think that's another added factor of this is a bounce back game. And the only other thing I'll say that um, just for anecdotal purposes, uh, Chris Clark told me that I had asked him uh, with, with so many former uh, players on the coaching staff uh, that played for coach Chaney, including Mark Macon, Jason Ivey, Aaron McKee, Chris Clark, um, have you guys had like internal conversations or what, you know, what have the guys asked about it? What have those conversations been like in the locker room since coach Chaney's passing? And uh, he didn't get into a lot of details um, just because, you know, it's all inner working stuff, but he did tell me that they did have a little bit of a, an open conversation about it. And Aaron McKee did show a, a couple of tribute videos and they, they'd opened up a little bit about who he was to the team, because as Chris Clark and I were kind of going back and forth about this team, a lot of these guys are not from the area. A lot of these guys do not know John Chaney growing up. And a lot of these guys don't really, didn't really know Temple basketball before they got here. So it was just an interesting anecdote. So today uh, shifting over to football today was the February version of national signing day, a quiet day for Temple because uh, they technically didn't sign anybody new today. Now they had three additions um, since the last go around in December, uh, adding, and we've talked about this before, of course, Lansing Ture and Zach Gill from North Carolina, and then uh, adding some. Real depth. quick, I think we've been mispronouncing his name. Really? Uh, according to the um, to Rod Carey, who mispronounced it, I think it's Lansing Lansing okay. Ture. Okay. Yeah. My apologies. Thank you, Kyle. I mean. I, I I think it's my fault. I've been saying Lansing for the last month, but it's it's Lansing. We're all to blame. It's it's, it's a team thing. Yeah. Mostly Sam Cohn's fault. Hmm. We win together, um, we lose together. <laughs> oh. um, so, and you're going to hear from Sam uh, Sam Newman in a second, who had an exclusive interview um, with Jeff Knowles, Temple's defensive coordinator, who talked about Trey and Gill. Obviously, the, uh, Temple also adds Iverson Clement in the backfield, the former four-star recruit out of Rancocas Valley High School. So those guys are already signed and enrolled. So no new national letters of intent coming in today as we record this on a Wednesday. Of course, we've mentioned this so many times before. The roster could change uh, after spring ball typically does, after guys kind of evaluate their situations, after the coaching staff evaluates their situations. So I don't think the the roster is set in stone uh, by any means, but uh, again, shifting over to to Carolina, Sam here, Sam Newman. Again, you talked to Jeff Knowles. Uh, Terrain Gill were, were two of the guys that he talked about 
Um, just give give our listeners like a, again the, the both those stories, part one and part two, uh, broken down on the site for our subscribers. But uh, you know, it sounds like Jeff Knowles is encouraged by by both of these guys and made a comparison uh, to someone they just recently lost, and Dan Archibong. What'd you take from that conversation and and tell people what he had to say about Teray and Gill? Well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're excited to have both of them on board. I mean, he kind of went into that they're hungry because they have to come in here and prove themselves. And you, you would have figured that they'd come in and see significant playing time. Um, as John, as you mentioned, he kind of compares Zach Gill to, to Dan Archibong. He's six foot five, 290 pounds, and he can kind of move in that interior. And I think that's kind of what they're looking to have inside is just somebody who's more nimble and athletic there. Um, and then moving on to Teray, he's just like a high motor guy. Um I mean, it, we compare both of the trees just to how big they are. Um, but he, Tere is, you know, he's got more twitch to him. He's a very active and it's a pass rusher. So um, I, I feel like those are two guys that you could see a lot of going forward. And they're coming into, you know, a, a program that has that chip on the shoulder mentality. And these are the two guys who have chips on their shoulders ready to prove themselves. So, it, it, I mean, they're already on campus, already working out. Um, so it looks like, you know, they're ready to get immersed in themselves in the defense. And I think we'd all be surprised if they both didn't play a pretty, pretty significant role going forward. Um, I know we've talked about Teray, like maybe them putting him interior, but, but Jeff Knowles didn't really get one way or another with that. I think maybe they like his flexibility along. He's a guy like Will Rogers who could probably play a, multiple positions across the defensive line, which is maybe something that they want to look for going forward. Um, another thing, you know, just going on to this conversation is um, about talking in the interior, because I feel like that's a big, you know, one of the biggest question marks on our defense. We talked about the linebackers, uh, cornerback. Obviously, they like to add another corner. I think all of us would probably be surprised if they didn't add another transfer corner. Um, don't read into them. Not signing one today. Transfers can sign at any time. Uh, Kevin Robertson was a name. I mean, he, he said he came in and and, you know, these guys are kind of responsible for over winter break, keeping in shape and, and that sort of stuff. And he said Kevin Robinson was in great shape. Nick Bags is a guy that he mentioned as somebody who can step up in the middle. So it seems like they're excited about the guys that they have here. And, you know, transitioning to that, they, they're kind of focusing on the guys that they have here. That that was kind of, you know, I tried to get him to, to talk about maybe some of the players that had left, but he didn't really want to do that. I mean, it was more so, you know, they want to buy into the team play for the team. Um, and, and, you know, th that's how they're going to win is buying into buying into this team. Um, and, and the main thing is the selling team over self. I know we already mentioned this and, and our subscribers have had an opportunity to read the Kobe Wilson story, but, you know, he talked about um, the whole wristband thing that they're just trying to um, that, you know, we're temples of brotherhood. We're, you know, going to do this for one another. And if you're all in, you're all in for the team. And if you're not like, if you're not like in, you're you're not in it for yourself, kind of thing. So um, it, it seems like you know just Jeff Knowles getting the barometer and see where he's at with the program. And see, they feel like they're in a good spot right now. I feel like that while you know Temple fans might be off put about the exodus of players, you also have to look at you know the level of talent they brought in. And it seems like you know just talking about some of the guys they're excited about. Uh, you know, just Gill and, and Ture bringing in those guys for sure. I mean, and go to the cornerback position. He even mentioned that, you know, I, I asked, like, is it reasonable to consider that Keyshawn Paul could be the number one cornerback and then mixing and matching? And he didn't really want to play his hands at Keyshawn and uh, is going to have to come in and fight for his spot. And that's kind of all the, what they say with the transfers. Um, none of them are going to be awarded his position right away. But um, I, th I think it, it would we would be remiss to see if they don't add – 
I, I would be surprised if, if Keyshawn Paul and another transfer cornerback are not the ones who are starting out there. Um, I mean, he mentioned Ty Mason as a guy who can play the nickel. I, I would also be surprised if we don't see a lot of three safety packages. He talked up MJ Griffin a lot. I'm wondering, I'm hoping that we can get MJ Griffin to talk to. Um, we, I recently requested to talk to him, so hoping we can get a story with him in the coming days. But, um, you know, I, I'm curious to see if they, they kind of carve out a role for him where both him and Amir Tyler can be on the field. But, you know, Jeff was great. Um, didn't really expect to get as much as I did for him, and we talked for like 25 minutes. So um, if you haven't checked out those conversations, definitely do so. Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely check that out. I, I would be a little, not necessarily surprised, but I think they would have to scheme a bit to get MJ Griffin and Amir Tyler on the field at the same time because neither of those guys are necessarily like coverage safeties. They're more closer to the box, but I mean, they're both obviously talented players. One guy that uh, I think that Jeff Knowles brought up that we didn't recently discuss was Freddie Johnson at that cornerback position. Um, he stuck around. The I understand Jeff Knowles not wanting to say that he that yeah he's at Gill like nobody nobody's been given a starting spot and blah blah. I think you could probably write Zach Gill's name in in pencil at, at starting the uh, interior defensive line position. One of the interesting things while we were waiting for this to the Zoom to kick off was I was watching Temple's four o'clock recruiting announcement. Is um, Rod Gary said. I think he kind of Rod Carey, if anything, is usually pretty self-aware, I think, of, of what the perspective of events are, like what what the PR aspect of it is of all of these players leaving and what the optics are. He said, like, I know it's hard for people on the outside, fans especially, he's like even some administrators, it's hard sometimes to see like what's going on. And he said in his time here at Temple, which is now more than two years, he's been here 25, 26 months, whatever it is. He said the feeling in the program, the locker room right now is like better than it's ever been. Is that bright siding it a little bit? Sure. But I think he, I think they're really kind of trying to get people to buy into like, like Sam said, the team first mentality, the it's us against the world mentality. You see on Twitter, you saw Mike Rumbridge and Jeff Knowles making breakfast sandwiches for the, the team during a workout situation or a, a lift session that from the outside perspective, it might come off as cheesy. The wristband thing might come off as like, Jesus Christ, you're getting these people to buy it, to put wristbands on. But I think from a program perspective, it's important. I think it does help build camaraderie and, and brotherhood aspects. Um, I think the additions of Gil and Teray were incredibly important because if you look at the depth chart, which has been updated now on alscoop.com scholarship, breakdown depth chart to split defensive tackle and defensive end because you know they're two separate positions. After Robertson, Gill, and Teray, every other scholarship defensive tackle is a freshman. Every single one. So that's a, that might still be a place that even though they've added two defensive tackles, they might still use one of those five or so remaining scholarships on, on a third. Um, I think it's a rip the Band-Aid off situation that you're finally starting to see a little bit of what Rod Carey wants this program to be. Temple has to do a lot of like selling and, and own recruiting in-house at this point just because they've had so many players leave and you kind of just have to reinforce the notion that hey we want you guys to be here we want guys who want to be here so we kind of mentioned the Kyle mentioned those things might be come off cheesy on the outside but they're doing anything that they can because it, with the way the transfer portal is at this point like guys can leave at any moment any point in time yeah. so um, I mean, you kind of have to give credit for them for being creative and doing certain things that might come off to the average person is like whatever, but I mean, they're showing that they care. And I think at the end of the day, that that's probably what, you know, needs to happen, especially with some of the chatterings that you've heard of people out leaving out the door. So what breakfast sandwich would you want Mike Dronovich to make you? I don't eat breakfast. Bacon, egg, and cheese, and salt, pepper, ketchup. 
What? I only I only eat breakfast anymore, but um, if I did, just like a sizzly. Can he make me a sizzly? Can he do like the pancake? As, is that part as, of your is that part of your new diet? Like you just you skip breakfast? Or? No, I that's not um that's not part of my diet, but I just do intermittent fasting, so I don't eat until noon during the day. This is gonna like I have a buddy who's gonna listen to this and just text me and call me a hardo, but like that's just like legitimately part of like my I feel like it's wasted calories. So I, I don't eat till noon. Which buddy's gonna say this to you? Uh it rhymes with Sandy Carl. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know that guy. Um, Sam and Sam, breakfast sandwiches. Oh, Sam Cohen, you already said yours, but you said it's so quick. Bacon, egg, and cheese. A bacon, egg, and cheese. Oh, yeah. like ketchup, salt, pepper? Is that as well? Yeah. yeah salt, pepper, ketchup. Can we talk- That's what they yell. That's what they yell at the wall. Salt, pepper, ketchup. We don't have to go on a tangent on this, but if if you are looking to lose weight or anything, that ketchup is the biggest waste of calories in the world. It's It's just... It's not good. For, it's sugar water, which it's I get because I, I mean I ate it for 28 years. But you just switch over the mustard. It's the same as switching the black coffee. You get over the adjustment period of mustard. That's zero calories. You're just free calories. I love. You got to find ways to account. You you guys are 21, 22. You're looking at me like I got two heads. You got to find okay, ways. I, you got to find ways to save calories wherever you can. <laughs> I don't. I don't eat that much ketchup. Like I'm. I'm not looking at you like that. I'm just the the comparison of. Granted, I don't drink coffee, so I don't know the comparison that Graham just made the switch from uh, mm-hmm. to dark coffee. Which I I yelled at him for two years to do this, and he finally did it. <laughs> but I <laughs> having way. had ketchup and having had mustard, I just don't see that being an easy switch. Like from only having one to only having. I do, I do I do mustard and fries. Like I use it for everything now. It's phenomenal. I like honey honey mustard on fries. Honey mustard, I'm a big fan of, but that's probably not good for you. Speaking uh, speaking yeah. of uh, speaking of food and, and condiments, Sam Cohn in the doghouse for something <laughs> oh, God. you make one joke labeled for life i'm removed, just trying to stir the pot make things interesting removed from removed from our group chat by kyle that's Fist. not uh, that's not the first time i've removed sam from the group chat is it not the first <laughs> you, no, the definitely first. when you get when you get removed from a group chat do you get like a message or something or do you like say no, you, you have, have, you to have go no in idea it? You have to go in. It's a new left. But I was in the group chat when I got moved. Like, I had my phone open to the group chat when I got removed. <laughs> and I tried the thing that Graham does when he adds himself back in, but it didn't work. <laughs> what did you I like, I imagine a Graham must have to do that multiple Graham's times. I do it multiple times. Tell, yeah, multiple tell, everybody, times. tell everybody what you did. Uh, so, you guys were talking about cheesesteaks and. Oh, because it was uh, it was. You were actually Bond, talking about ketchup on cheesesteaks. Her Twitter poll about about ketchup on cheesesteaks, and you guys had kind of all put in your opinions. And I said that I would not. I generally do not put ketchup on my steak and cheese. And I didn't last long in a group chat after that one. You say sub too. Uh, I say sub, but not for like. I wouldn't call a cheesesteak a sub. Like I would call a sub oh, if it was like like what they sell at Subway, like with deli, like a like on a roll. See that I at least get because like I accept that like hoagies like and sub. Yeah, like I accept that like hoagies and subs are like a universal thing. Like everybody has those, and it's just locally in the Delaware Valley people call them hoagies. Like I get that cheesesteaks are a Philadelphia thing that other people are trying to replicate. So like you need to call it what Philadelphia calls it. If you go to Faneuil Hall in Boston, there is – I don't know if you guys have been to Faneuil Hall. It's yeah. its like a lesser um, uh, Reading Terminal Market where there's just like a long hallway with a bunch of vendors. Oh, no, I have there, been there. Isn't it right near like um, 
like a John Adams thing? I feel like I have been there. Yes, yes, it is. It's right near Dick's Last Resort, and it's right yeah. near the bar yeah. that the show is named after. That I Cheers, Cheers, Cheers. Cheers used to be there. Cheers. Not anymore. Court. Cheers used to be there. Yeah, it's all in that same spot. Whatever. But there is a vendor that says like, um, you know, Philadelphia famous, Philadelphia's famous cheesesteaks or whatever. I've never had it, but I'm assuming they're garbage. But if I go like kind of near me, like the, I, I've been to places, any uh, like sandwich shop near me, we'll call it a steak and cheese. Real quick, just because I want to kind of dunk on Boston a little bit. Um, the Do fact it. that when you're using, when you're trying to tell people a reference point for a city and you went to your go-to reference point was a chain where they make fun of you and like as Dick's Last Resort, not the best sign. There has to be better things going on in that city. You could be like, oh, it's near the Freedom Trail, where that starts, blah, blah. No, you went Dick's Last Resort. Who cares about the Freedom Trail? Dick's Last Resort, where they'll make you wear a little paper, paper hat that says, like, I like to blow bubbles. And then somebody else say, like, hi, my name is Bubbles. Like, I wish they were that nice. <laughs> <laughs> they are paid to be mean. They're paid there to be assholes. Yes. And it's a chain. chain. My like, they have one, in the, they have one in the Inner Harbor in, like, Baltimore. <laughs> We were Kyle's point is we were looking for a sli- an authentic slice of Boston and you give us like a chain essentially Applebee's with mean. Yeah, it was right, it's right near the Hard Rock Cafe. Like, yeah, yes, you guys heard of a Hard Rock Cafe? It's it's I, it's, I didn't know there, there was a Hard Rock Cafe near there. You guys ever been to TGI Fridays? Yeah, it's essentially. Yeah. What it looks. <laughs> See, look, Sam Cohn looks upset. He's not. He's not rolling. <laughs> yeah, he's not. He's not rolling. <laughs> <laughs> Earbuds are gonna pop out of his head. He's just, just that very upset. Oh, so, but Sam will have our coverage of tomorrow's game temple cincinnati so follow him for temple's coverage or al scoops coverage of temple cincinnati sam um, will be taking john's class from uh, the leah course center too <laughs> yeah well, inside scoop there yeah podcasting <laughs> tomorrow in our class going over they're gonna be they're gonna they're gonna be playing music in the leah course I'm like, what what mm-hmm. i'm not gonna be able to hear you but i'll try to take class i'll try to pay attention i take class you know, you're, yeah, you're going to need to pay attention. We're going to talk about podcasts. Come on. We're, We're taking gonna, a quiz. Yeah, you're taking a quiz, taking an AP Styleable quiz. Sam Sam Newman, also in that class. Maybe Kyle zooms in and see how he does with the AP Styleable quiz. No. Imagine if Kyle came to speak to our class about being a journalist. He would just eviscerate me. That's all he it'd would be, do. It'd be like counterproductive because you would have, you would have people – asking their journalist professor why he just brought in a guest that told them to change their major from journalism. (laughs) (laughs) But I also also, uh, pro bono harasses, or I guess not harasses, but goes after student reporters. I am giving all of you hard love, except for (laughs) one one of the people that like that tweet. It's not hard love. (laughs) Figure it out amongst yourselves. (laughs) Um, and one more one more thing about about yes. Cincinnati is tomorrow. Uh, just to kind of tie things back to the game, um, if you haven't heard already, by the time you're hearing this podcast, Temple's players will be wearing a badge or a patch on their jerseys that say "Coach" in honor of Coach John Chaney, which right. I think is a really cool idea. I'd heard it was not totally sure it was going to be ready by tomorrow's Cincinnati game, just because of the storm the last couple of days and you know getting that all shipped in and stuff. But they should have them for tomorrow's game or today's game whenever you're listening as they go to be the Cincinnati team that they haven't beaten since January of 2016. When, when Dre Perry and JP Mormon were juniors in high school was the last time they beat Cincinnati. That Cincinnati game where they were the year that they were a play-in seed in the tournament against Belmont. That was a terrible loss. You guys remember that one? Oh yeah. Uh, Final year. Right. Cronin's final year too. That was was the Sunday afternoon game. Was oh yeah yeah Sunday afternoon when they played at when they played at the Leah Course Center that was a noon game on a Sunday 
brutal. Having played bat- plenty of basketball games at noon or eleven on a Sunday. It's well, they so play. Good. They play two o'clock this Sunday against Wichita State, right? right. I think it's three. That's I think not it's, much better. It's two o'clock Wichita time, right? I, I have yeah. no idea. Yeah. Ah, we'll oh. be a real barn burner. <laughs> well, we we've been glancing over the most important event of the day, which is that our little baby boy Graham is somewhere between the ages of 21 and 27 now as <laughs> today's his birthday it's, it's his Jordan year. Jordan year. oh he's 23 jesus yeah. no he's getting old i've never met a single person that bounces like back and forth between like 14 year old and like 38 year old so him being 23 is a little <laughs> a little confusing to me 13 going on 30 split the difference yeah. hopefully uh hopefully graham is having either a socially distanced or a zoom birthday party today i like how he said in our group chat they just lurks now <laughs> he's just a lurker on this group chat yeah he so, does he, he lurks <laughs> and jumps in every once in a while or just hits you with the generic heart and kyle made out the point what what does graham have better that going on did i say that i mean i think that but did i say that <laughs> i think you did <laughs> kyle gal story i think that did i actually articulate that did i say that out loud i got i got a lot of thoughts <laughs> I was that uh, wrong of me? Should I have not have done that? You'll know. I was, uh, I was on a Zoom today. Uh, and I was drinking tea, and my mug was like a mug that my wife had bought from Home Goods or something. I said, "Be kind," and somebody like made a remark about it, and I looked at it, and I was like, "Oh, you can tell this is my wife's mug because like this does not match up with my like philosophy." Where's <laughs> like, Kyle really eviscerates you? He does this. Uh, I like to point out that you were a little in your feelings on Sunday. When you said, do you ever say anything nice anymore? <laughs> Truth. You brought up, you said, I'd like to see them revamp Spider-Man, the most revamped Obviously, character. Sarcastic. It was sarcasm. It was sarcasm. I'm not just to it. cut in, just to cut in for our listeners, what John was doing that, that Kyle always does when he's knows he's being mean is he makes a little heart uh, with his hands oh, yeah. over his heart. No, the, the listeners can't see that over Zoom. So I thought I'd articulate that. We should, we yeah. should start doing the, uh, the video scoop meeting. yeah the video scoop you can see my my child's bouncer in the background me dealing with a, a pimple on my nose and john asked me if i was bleeding before we started it was a uh, watch me turn my lights on with my phone yeah yeah go ahead technology all right well that's gonna do it for us this anyway <laughs> a huge thank you to marty collins for spending time with us and, and sharing some great stories about his former coach john cheney big thank you to all of you for tuning in once again this week uh, again, stay tuned for our coverage of Temple's game against Cincinnati. Follow Sam Cohn for updates there. And we'll talk to you guys next week.